some people love them and some people hate them, but I want to think with you for just a moment this morning about presentations. Uh, We use the word presentation to describe lots of things. Uh, I wonder what you think about when you hear the word presentation. Probably uh, you think about work or a classroom assignment. You have to make a presentation to your class about Frisbees or a novel or some research project. If you know that the uh, class is going to be taken up with student presentations, is that likely to increase or decrease your uh, chances of attending that class? Oh. Well, I always went, but everybody in that class knows that whatever is said in that hour is what? Not going to be on the test. Uh, what about presentations to your clients or your coworkers about some new policy that the company is implementing? Have you been offered the opportunity to go to some presentation from your insurance company or uh, an insurance company about some new uh, Medicare change or, or insurance change? You, you go to this presentation Uh, If you are a hostess, maybe the word presentation means something a little bit different to you. You might think about the presentation of your table. Some people, they come to your house, you have extremely, you're extremely skilled and gifted at this. And, and when guests sit down at your table, they are presented with a beautiful table. Everything matches. All the food is cooked wonderfully and it's all in matching bowls and dishes. Several years ago, we were staying at a friend's house um, for a few days. We were in Dallas, actually. And at breakfast, our, our, uh, she put a, a bowl of uh, a cantaloupe. Actually, it was freshly cut cantaloupe, but it was in a Tupperware. It was in a Tupperware container. Her mother was a meticulous host, and my friend said, my mother would be horrified to know I'm setting Tupperware on the table in front of you. <laughs> There's presentation at mealtime, isn't there? Uh, You present yourself in a number of settings. You present yourself at a job interview. You present yourself when you meet the parents of your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Uh, One of my seminary professors always had a rule in his house that the second date any of his daughters went on was always at their home for dinner. And inevitably, during the course of the meal, everybody knew this. This man, his name was uh, Doug Cecil. Doug would turn to the young man and he would say, it's so nice to have you in our home tonight. Tell me, uh, how would you describe your relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you crossed the line of faith yet or not? You better know that that young man had prepared for that presentation. In fact, I think that's what the first date was about. You went on the first date so she could tell you what to say when her dad asked that question. Uh, was it a presentation when you proposed? Probably. How did, how did you do it? You arranged the day. You picked the day. You checked the weather forecast. You uh, planned for a special meal at a special place. You tried to create some sort of ambiance, whether it was a surprise or an expected romantic culmination. It may have been the most effort that you have ever in your life extended romantically. And all the wives say, yeah, it was. It's over. Um, We use the word presentation to describe a lot, don't we? Uh, you're, You're trying to offer yourself, offer something. You're offering something to someone, a meal, a relationship, an opportunity, a deal, with the hopes that it will be received and welcomed. You're setting something out for someone to take with the hope that they will take it. 
This morning, what I want to do is I want to talk to you about three different sort of presentations. One of them is from the book of Leviticus. We're walking through this book. The other two have to do with this week's events, the occasions that we will mark this week as we think in particular about the Lord's death and resurrection. Now, these presentations are related. In fact, the first, the the last one only makes sense in light of the first two. Uh, Before we proceed, I I want you to take your Bibles and turn me to Leviticus chapter 7. Leviticus chapter 7 is where in our text we're going to be this morning um, for a portion of our time. And I want to read from verses 22 to 27. This text is the source of our final presentation I want to talk about, but it gets its source, its power, its sustaining power from the first two. Let's read first, though. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 22. Leviticus, of course, first, uh, the third book in the Bible, so it should be really easy for you to find. Uh, follow along as I read. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Do not eat any of the fat of cattle, sheep, or goats. The fat of an animal found dead or torn by wild animals may be used for any other purpose, but you must not eat it. Anyone who eats the fat of an animal from which an offering by fire may be made to the Lord must be cut off from his people. And wherever you live, you must not eat the blood of any bird or animal. If anyone eats blood, that person must be cut off from his people. It's a strange little passage here dropped right into towards the end of the the section of scripture where where Moses, the Lord to Moses, describes the offerings and the sacrifices that were to be made. Um, Leviticus itself gives us, of course, these specific commands for a specific time that are embedded here in this specific relationship. God has a unique relationship with the people of Israel. They worship him in a unique uh, way. And and. Overall, the, the question of the book of Leviticus is, how can sinful, broken people live with a holy, perfect God? Uh, this is the time of year when many people start to think this question, or at least they turn their attention in some way to this thought of what it means to be rightly related to God. If there is a God of the universe, what does it mean to know him, to, to relate to him? What does he expect from us? And are those things that he expects from us worth doing? These here that we just read are some very basic instructions, some restrictions, actually, about what the Israelites could and could not do with the sacrifices, with the animals that they uh, owned, uh, that they brought to worship, or the animals that they owned and and died or, or were killed. Uh, The rule is that the fat of the sacrifices and the blood all belonged to God and was not to be eaten. Uh, They were to be presented to the Lord. This paragraph doesn't tell us why other texts do. Uh, They tell us that that God himself claims the fat and he himself claims the blood. The fat is the most desirable part of the animal. The blood is the part of the animal that keeps it alive. And they all they both belong to God. Here, here's one specific instance of a cultural, of a, one specific cultural instance of a pattern that will show up all the way through the Bible. For those who are followers of Jesus Christ, we take this seriously. And the principle is the best belongs to God. That's what Leviticus 7:22 to 27 says. The best belongs to God. 
And the logic of that principle is, is, is pretty clear. This is our reasonable response to what God has already given to us. We present the best to him because he has already presented his best to us. Now, I want to demonstrate the logic of that by leaving for just a moment here this text. And I want to think about this day, this week. Uh, before this presentation in Leviticus 7 makes sense, we need to think about the other two presentations that the Bible uh, sets before us. Here's a presentation I want you to remember, and it's particularly related to Palm Sunday. First of all here, Jesus presented himself to Israel as king. Jesus presented himself to Israel as king. Today's Palm Sunday. I already read the description of Palm Sunday from the Gospel of Mark, and you probably know this story very well. And as you read the Gospels, one of the things that unfolds is it is evident that Jesus has been strategically planning for this day, for Palm Sunday. He spent the night before Palm Sunday in Bethany. It's just a couple miles up the hill from Jerusalem. And to get to Jerusalem, he would need to go downhill on one of the main entrances in, into the, the city. He carefully orchestrated the day, taking full advantage of the festivities related to, to Passover. He rode a donkey that had never been ridden before into the city. This is what kings do. This is what conquering rulers do. They, in a ceremonial way, ride their animals, ride the, the, the mighty steeds into the city. And he was surrounded by his followers who, who shouted, Hosanna, and paved the road with cloaks and palms. This is a very clear kingly offer that Jesus is making to the people. And what's clear from the gospel accounts is that, that this was a confused crowd. Uh, Matthew tells us that when Jesus' procession entered the city and when the people melted into the rest of the city, there were people who said, who, who is that guy? Who, who is he? Oh, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, no, doesn't ring a bell. Uh, certainly among the crowd, there were faithful followers. There were disciples. There were those who heard Jesus teach and seen him perform miracles. There were those who were committed uh, to him. There were close followers who believed, who hoped really that Jesus was the long-promised king from God. They hoped that he was the Messiah. They didn't know how, they didn't know how it was all going to work out, how the details were going to work. But they believed that Jesus was this conquering hero, and they wondered if this was the moment that Jesus was going to wear God's kingly crown. There were others among the crowd, I'm sure, who just took advantage of the opportunity to honor a local hero. There are some sources who suggest that parades like this happened annually around Passover. Maybe this, we could think of this event like, uh, like a Memorial Day parade. And Jesus is the grand marshal of this year's parade. And, and, and our Memorial Day parades, we wave flags. But at this Memorial Day or this parade, they wave their own national symbol, palm branches. Now, certainly there were some among this crowd who just got caught up in the festivities. Have, have you ever been at a restaurant? Probably you have. You've been sitting in a restaurant when someone else in the restaurant had a birthday. What happens? The waiters, the servers come out. They announce it. Hey, everybody, it's John's birthday. And your first thought is, I'm thankful I'm not John. That's your first thought. And then, um, then the servers sing the most wretched rendition of happy birthday you've ever heard in your life. Sometimes, every now and then it happens, just occasionally, um, 
the, the, the servers are strike at the right moment and everybody gets involved in this and you find yourself singing happy birthday. You don't know who it is, really. You, you missed that. You weren't paying attention. So when it comes to the happy birthday, you mumble something, dear patient. You have no idea what that person's name is, but you want to join in. Here they, they didn't sing happy birthday. They waved palms and shouted Hosanna. I don't know who that guy is, but hey, this is fun. This is the culmination of Jesus' ministry. Here he is, the king. Jesus is the king if you will have him. And what becomes clear over the next few days is that Jesus is not the sort of king that they expected. In fact, they rejected him as king. And his kingly claim became part of his trial, didn't it? They were trying to convince Pilate to execute him. Pilate had no reason to execute him until they said to him, Oh, Pilate, don't you know, this guy claims to be king. We don't have a king but Caesar. He's the only king. And if you like Caesar as king, you can't accept this guy, Jesus, because he claims to be king. Pilate got back at them, didn't he? He didn't want to be backed into that corner that way. So he, he got his revenge on those Jewish leaders by, by putting that, that sign above Jesus. Here's Jesus, the king of the Jews. Huh. What sort of king is Jesus? What sort of king is he if he offers himself? I, I want to borrow from John for a minute here. He is a king who is full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. I could take you to a lot of passages where we we could talk about this in greater detail, but I noticed a contrast in the Gospel of Luke that I think is worth looking at. In fact, if you want, you can turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14 and chapter 15, and I want to think for a minute about those two chapters and how they relate to one another. Who, What sort of king is Jesus? What sort of king presented himself to the people? One full of grace and truth. And chapters 14 and 15 offer this contrast in Luke. Let me just talk for a minute about 15. You know about what happens in chapter 15 of Luke. It's a chapter with three stories. They're among the most best-known stories in all of Christianity. They're about lost things, aren't they? A lost king, a a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. And as Jesus tells these stories, he's depicted as the one who rescues the lost. He's the one who finds them, who, who restores them. And, and Jesus is saying to the, to the people, by, by telling this story, he's saying to them, whoever you are, whatever you've done, come home. It's a beautiful message in the gospel, isn't it? Come home. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, come home. Jesus is the one who rescues beautiful picture. Everybody loves this message. We say in Jesus' stead because he's appointed us to. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, come home. Beautiful message. And it's certainly true. But look with me at what Jesus had said previously in Luke chapter 14. In fact, I want you to look at verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his, hate 
his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Look down at verse 33. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. See a contradiction there, or or what appears to be a contradiction between what he demands in chapter 14 and what he offers in chapter 15? On one hand, there's this message, whoever you are, whatever, whatever you've done, come home. On the other hand, he had just said to them, oh, and drop everything you have at the door before you come into my house. Uh, turn back from everything. Does that seem like, sound like the same person? Um, I don't think there's a, a contradiction here. Uh, I think what we see as we read chapter 14 is that Jesus is telling us how to come home. He's telling us how to come home in the way that will be the most satisfying, the most fulfilling, the most pleasing. Anybody can come. Anybody can come home, but if you really want to take up my offer, you will recognize that I am going to turn your world upside down. You might as well empty your pockets before you get here. We love to go to amusement parks, our family does. Uh, Every year we go, we're at the Dutch Wonderland stage of life. I'm very much looking forward to the Hershey Park or Darney Park stage of life. Um, you don't have to empty your pockets before you get on any ride at, at Dutch Wonderland. It's not required. But on some of the rides, the big rides at, at Hershey Park and Dorney Park, they have signs warning you. Don't get on this ride if you're pregnant, if you've got back problems, if you've got heart problems. Don't get, don't, and, and before you get on this ride, recognize you're going to lose your hat, you're going to lose your glasses, you're going to use your change, you're going to lose your wallet. Everything's going to come out as we whip you around. And people flock to these rides, right? This is great fun. I want to be turned upside down and flipped around, and this is, is going to be excellent. Jesus says, you come to me, I'm going to turn your world upside down. Empty your pockets before you get here. Might as well take it all out. Take it all off because uh, 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 you don't need a hat. You don't need your glasses. You don't need the change. Uh, it's all going to come out when I turn your world upside down. It's his grace that Jesus is this demanding. He, he is kindly telling us what it means for us to really follow him. We have a number of men in our, our congregation who have been through boot camp. Was your drill sergeant demanding? Uh-huh. Did he have any grace at all? Probably not. His job was to wean you from your independence, your lack of discipline, your arrogance, so that you could be free to fulfill your duty and join yourself to your unit with your whole heart. Have you ever had a demanding music teacher? Oh, they make you practice. And they correct you. You have to learn notes. You have to develop your ear. You have to pay attention to dynamics. And all of those demands are part of the process of freeing you to play beautiful music. Jesus is full of grace and truth. His demands are part of the shaping process that free you to drink deeply of his abundant grace. I think remembering that is going to be crucial for you this week. It's going to be crucial for you this week in particular because you are going to hear news story after news story about the role that homosexuality plays in our culture. 
You're going to hear a lot about it because there are going to be two court cases this week argued before the Supreme Court, one about California's ban on same-sex marriage and one about the Defense of Marriage Act. And we are in the midst of a massive cultural shift and the pace of which is unbelievable. In 1984, 90% of graduating seniors, high school graduating seniors, in 84, 90% believed that homosexuality was immoral. In 2013, the statistics have shifted completely. Less than 10% believe that homosexuality is immoral. Some of the recent surveys that have come out believe that most Americans uh, say that most Americans believe that same-sex marriage should be legal. There are some evangelicals who are arguing that we are losing the case. We are losing the argument in, in the public sphere. On the other hand, I have heard, too, who some, some who say that we're not losing the argument. There's just, there is no argument. All that's being done is that those who are opinion leaders are saying that opposition to homosexuality is distasteful. It's bigoted. It's intolerant. I have very little doubt that within a few years, we will lose our tax-exempt status because of the position that we have from the Bible on homosexuality. We are on the wrong side of history. Except Eric Metaxas, who's a great writer and speaker, says, God determines who's on the right side of history, not the mainstream media and certainly not the government. Jesus is full of grace and truth, and he makes demands of all of us. Our sexuality is under his control, and we must all submit to him. That is stone-cold truth. And we believe that because God's design is for sexual intimacy between, to be between a husband and a wife in marriage alone... We, we believe that. We, we teach it. We proclaim it. We say it's best for everyone. And yet at the same time, we make the case, that's truth, the same time we make the case that Jesus is worth turning from homosexuality for. You might have a conversation like that someday. You might have a conversation with somebody. You'd be sitting across the table and you'd be talking to them. Maybe it's a coworker or a neighbor, a cousin, one of your children. And you talk to them about following Jesus Christ and, and what it's like, and they'll say to you, is Jesus worth giving up my boyfriend for? Is Jesus worth giving up my girlfriend for? And you will, at that point in time, warmly describe the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who receives all kinds of people to himself. Gay sinners, straight sinners, religious sinners, atheistic sinners, black sinners, white sinners, American sinners, Korean sinners, Nigerian sinners, all kinds of sinners. Today's the day that we mark that Jesus presented himself as the king to Israel. And he was rejected by him, by them, this king who's full of grace and truth. Now this week, in a particular way, we're going to mark another presentation that, that was made here in the Bible, a second presentation to think about here. God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. 
God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. The culmination of Jesus' ministry in Palestine was this entry into Jerusalem. But the culmination of God's eternal plan began with the crucifixion. And and just as Jesus had carefully orchestrated the triumphal entry, so the Bible tells us that God has carefully orchestrated the threads of time and circumstances into the cross. He wove this story together through his careful plan. In John chapter 3, Jesus uses this strange phrase. He says of himself, I will be lifted up. It's a strange phrase. What happens on a football field when the team wins? They lift up their coach, right? You pick up the coach on your shoulders. You lift him up in victory. Here, Jesus says, I am going to, by God, be lifted up on the cross. Romans 3, verse 25 tells us that God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. And the emphasis in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice in all of the ways that I am uh, have failed the way all the ways that I am not perfect, Jesus is. And all the ways that you fall short of God's perfect standards, Jesus did not. He was never impatient when one of the disciples asked stupid questions. When they failed to learn what they should have. He was never self-righteously cynical when he saw somebody else's efforts to worship fall flat. He was never selfish when this platter of food was set before the disciples. He himself is the best offering. He is the best sacrifice that anyone could possibly present. And he was presented by God himself for us to do what we could never do, which is appease the wrath of God. We have earned God's righteous wrath. And Jesus bore it in our place. Up to this point in the story of the Bible, human beings have offered animals, haven't they? In obedience to God's command, they have presented sheep and goats and bulls to make atonement, to be the substitute. But now here, God himself, who has given the best, he has given his one and only son. And in light of what God has presented for us, we come to the third presentation, which takes us back to the the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 7 tells us, we present the best of who we are and have to God. We present the best of who we are and have to God. This paragraph that I read from Leviticus chapter 7 is about the fat and about blood. Now the word fat here in the Old Testament sacrificial system is more than just about the adipose tissue of the sacrifices. It's more than just about that white gelatinous stuff that you cut off your chicken or your beef before you cook it. Uh, It refers in general to the best cuts of meat, the best parts of the animal. That's what the word fat means. In Genesis 4, Abel brings, uh, the text says, of the fat of his flock. That is, he brought the best of his animals. Uh, The best cuts of meat. Now, if you found a dead animal or if one of the animals you owned was killed, you could use the fat for whatever you wanted. You could use it for lighting. You could use it for shoe polish. Uh, But of the sacrificial animals, those parts all belong to God. The blood belonged exclusively to God. You couldn't use it for anything else. It was the symbol of life. God is the author of life, and to eat blood is to assume, presume on his authority. 
So Leviticus is telling us here is that the proper way to worship, to live before God, is to recognize his supreme worth and to present to him our best. I I wonder if you collect anything. Do you collect anything? Probably you do. Lots of people collect things. Um, Coins, dolls, baseball cards, guns, stamps, hats, figurines, comic books. Most people collect something. I wonder if you, if you display your collection. Do you have your collection? Some of you, you have a, a beautiful collection in a box in the attic. But some of you have a display. You, you display your collection. And, and doubtless among that collection, you have a favorite piece of it, don't you? The, the piece that took you the longest to find. The piece that was the hardest. Uh, the piece that maybe you, you, someone significant and special in your life had, had given you. And it's, it's a favorite be, because of that. Where do you, you put that, that piece when you display your collection? Just in the center so everybody can, can see it. That's the thing that they will notice. This is, of all my beautiful things, of all my collection that I have, this is my pride and joy. This is the thing I love. This thing has, has the supreme worth of all of my collection, and it takes preeminence in the display. And what Leviticus is telling us, it's setting down this principle that carries all the way through the Bible, is that, that God himself is to have the supreme worth, and therefore he is to be on preeminent display in your life. To be rightly related to God is to recognize his supreme worth, and, and to know that the best of what you are and the best of what you have belongs to God. Rightly so, it belongs to God. I'll think about this with me here, how this works out for a minute in our church, in our congregational life. Just thinking about this. We do a lot of things. We perform a lot of ministries. And, and we understand that, that our service to one another is the overflow of our relationship with God. That's how we serve one another. The Bible doesn't really draw sharp lines between how we serve others and how we honor God. Just think about when Jesus was asked, which commandment is great? They wanted one answer, and he he gave them two. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. They're they're put together so tightly in the Bible. And that's true for how we, we serve. But the way that we recognize that he is worthy of the best is, is we do, when we gather together and the times that we focus on singing to him and praying to him and listening to his word, those are the times that receive our highest interest, our highest energy, our highest enthusiasm. He's, he's worthy of the best of our congregation's energies and focus. I thought about this this week a, a lot. I've wondered about this. This would be the moment in time, I know without a doubt, that, that, that 30 years ago, uh, this would have been the time when um, a pastor would have stood and said, now what this means, ladies and gentlemen, is that you must wear your best to church on Sunday. If you've been around the church for a long time, you know that that's true, that that would have been the emphasis. It's not an emphasis that I've ever mentioned. Not because I don't think it's an inconsequential thing. It's on your list of things that you thought about this morning. But it's on the list. It's on the list. It's probably number 84 on the list of consequential things that you should think about. See, God is more concerned 
when you gather for worship about what you think when you walk in the door and how you look at other people and what you think about them than he is with what, what you're wearing. He's, he's more concerned about what you think about when you drive to church and you pass that house. You know that house I'm talking about. It's the house you pass every week. It's the house that if you had $5 million you would own. It's the house that just got the brand new siding and it's so much better than your house. And you think about every Sunday when you drive by church. You look really nice, but on the inside there's coveting and envy. That, that's like number six on the list. Well, let's think about here uh, um, this, how this works out in, in a few different ways in, in your, your life. I want to think about it with you in, time, in terms of priority. And I want to mention specifically three areas. God is worthy of a priority in your schedule. He's worthy of priority in your schedule. The best time of your day is his. Think about that. The best time for me that I have is God's. When and how are you at your best during your day? After coffee. (laughs) Um, In what ways is God prioritized in your schedule? I've heard John Piper on occasion say you have a rule in their church, no Bible, no breakfast. Excuse me. Yes, no Bible, no breakfast. You don't eat breakfast if you don't read your Bible. It's not, it's not one of the Ten Commandments. But it's one of the ways that God is evidently prioritized in your schedule, isn't it? Does God have priority in your budget, what you do with your money? It was evident in Malachi's day. Pastor Scott read that passage from Malachi. It was evident that God did not have priority in the animals that they were bringing because they were diseased. They were sick. God is only worthy of my leftovers, so that's what I bring. That's a great temptation when your money is tight, isn't it? You don't honor God when you evaluate your giving based on what's left over after you've bought the things that you really want. Here's something else. How about priority in your efforts? Priority in your efforts. Do do you have the same excuse that comes to your mind, that comes to my mind when I've neglected something I know I should do? When I've neglected reading my Bible during the day or or praying or when I lose my temper again? Here's my excuse when those besetting sins come knocking again at my door. Does this sound familiar? I know what I should do, but I am just too tired. Is that an excuse that comes to your mind? I should have too many things to do. There's too many other things weighing down on me. There's too many people demanding things from me. It's easy. It's so easy to allow God to be squeezed right out of life. But he's, if he's worthy of the best, then he is also worthy of our best efforts, our strongest, most valiant efforts. I pour in your effort, your energy. Do you have more of your energy exercised in reaching the next level of your favorite video game or in excising lust from your life? Which best effort here goes for it? Now, this presentation to God of the best of who we are and what is always a response to what he has already offered to us. That's Paul's argument in Romans 12, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, isn't it? 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, in light of what he has already presented to us, his son, who is full of grace and truth, his son, who is our sacrifice for our sins. In light of that, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Leviticus 7 says, you offer the best of the animals. Romans 12 says, you offer the best of your life. No one will tell you the truth about you like Jesus. No one will welcome you home like Jesus. No one will give himself to you like Jesus. So coming to him is the best, the most demanding offer you will ever receive. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning, and uh, your word at times uh, stings us as it speaks to us about the things we value and the things that we love. Uh, Father, our, our, our desire is, our, our, we recognize that before your word stings us, it sings to us. It sings to us of our wondrous Savior who came and spoke to us the truth and offered us his grace and died in our place on the cross. And it stings sometimes when it talks to us about a reasonable act of worship, a, a um, sensical thing to do. In light of all you have given, um, you are worthy of the best. Father, we all are measured by this, by this word. It, 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 it touches all of us. I'm thankful for these men and women who, who seriously consider that and are thinking carefully about it and, and who want to look through their calendars and through their checkbooks and through their schedules to find out their, their days what effort are you worthy of? What sacrifices are you worthy of? What, what time are you worthy of? Thank you for the men and women in our lives, in our church, who demonstrate the evidence of God's grace and that they consider carefully that. You who are our shepherd, would you lead us from the rocky places we have created for ourselves to lie down in green pastures and to drink from cool waters? We place ourselves in dangerous, perilous, foolish places. But your goodness and mercy follows us all the days of our lives. O oh, good shepherd, lead us, help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.